William Dyer here with Dyer Conversations. Thanks for joining me on another podcast. Today, we have a special guest. You may have seen him on Dateline talking about some cold case homicide cases that he was investigating. You may have seen him at a national conference or read one of his books, Mr. Jay Warner Wallace. Thanks for joining us, sir. Well, you know, I'm glad to be with you. I feel like we go back a long way. So finally we do we get go a chance back to see way. each other after what, a couple of years, maybe mm-hmm. well, we've seen each other in between there. But yeah, I'm glad to, glad to be with you. That's right. And uh, so just so everybody knows, person of interest, this is the book right here. New, hot off the presses. I just finished it this week. Fantastic book. I expected nothing less from you, sir, off the other books that I read from you. So thank you for putting out another great piece of material. Well, you're very kind. And, and you just don't know sometimes, because I think all of us, when we write a book, we think, oh, this is going to be good. But you know, you don't know if it's going to be good. <laughs> you yeah. hope it is. And and you kind of wonder if am I just so myopic that I don't see what's so terrible about it. So, so I think everyone who's an author kind of waits to see how it's received. Not that you want to spend, you know, your entire life worried about how everything's received, but but you're sure. really trying to reach in a book like this, we're, we're trying to preach the gospel. We're trying to open up the door to the gospel. We're trying to get people who maybe wouldn't be interested in the gospel, interested, maybe for the first time. So there is a sense in which we are concerned about, um, is it accessible? Uh, does it make sense? Does, is it compelling? So those are things we're, we are concerned about because we're trying to reach people with the truth. So, and one of the things too, that, you know, people who might not, if they don't know you for some reason, uh, you know, you've got a couple of different books out. Um, so you have Cold Case Christianity. You have Forensic Faith. I know you wrote The Cold Case for Kids. And there was, yeah. wasn't there one other one? Yeah, God's Crime Scene was in the middle of there. And just the book about God's existence from science mm-hmm. and philosophy. So we're trying to, and really it was a trilogy I wanted to write. And the, the first publisher was it really wasn't, um, wasn't sure what order they should go in. Hmm. So so we picked that order of uh, cold case christianity first then god's crime scene then forensic faith and this book is person of interest is kind of like a companion in other words it's everything that cold case is not uh this book is so everything that's inside the new testament examining that stuff that's in cold case christianity but everything that's outside the new testament um is in person of interest so we're trying to do a flip on the uh, on the idea well, exactly. And that's what I kind of wanted to ask you about, too, is like, how is this book different uh, than the other one? And I mean, I knew it because I've read all of them. But just for our viewers, you know, when you read Cold Case Christianity, you're coming at it investigating the Gospels. You know, are these reliable eyewitnesses? Do they contradict one another? What You know, is it a conspiracy? All that sort of other stuff. However, in this book, Person of Interest, you're looking at it from the other side going, what information do we get about this character, Jesus, from outside the New Testament? Right. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, again, every bit of information we have about Jesus eventually comes back to the eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. But what if you had a thought experiment where you said, look, um, I, every New Testament was destroyed. I mean, wouldn't you expect if Jesus is who he said he was, that they would be such, there would be such a tidal wave of impact in human culture, in human history, that we could, even if we tried to destroy Jesus in any way, you wouldn't be able to destroy him. If you destroyed every New Testament, you would not be able to destroy the information we have about Jesus because he has so deeply impacted every important aspect of culture and left his fingerprints everywhere that we could reconstruct the story of Jesus from any number of weird, unexpected, kind of bizarre places that you might not expect him. You're not going to be able to destroy Jesus by just destroying the New Testament. And one of the things that makes 
your book so interesting. Um, and, and I know this doesn't just appeal to me, but it does appeal to me, you know, in the sense of the law enforcement background, right? Um, you're retired. Uh, I've got five years in. So we have some law enforcement connection there. But the books, when you write them, you tie in these, these cases that you've worked and kind of, it's almost like I'm watching a TV show. I get like this little cliffhanger and then you go back to the book and then we follow the case a little bit more than we keep going with the book and you're tying it all together. So it makes it so intriguing as you're reading. It's almost like you're watching a movie the well, whole and time. And we learn a lot about that, Billy, just from working with kids books. You know, you, you know, our kids books are out there and, and, and with the kids books, we knew that, that we're going to go into some deep stuff. Um, and we wanted to push the kids as far as we could, eight to 12 year olds. But we also knew that, um, that stories are important. And so we would tell, uh, we would have a mystery that, that kids could solve. And then they would move from that mystery with the tools they just gained to investigating the case for God or the case for Jesus, whatever it may be. And so we, we saw the kind of impact that had with young people that um, their parents would write to me and say, yeah, you know, we turned, we couldn't put this thing down. We kept on, <laughs> we, we read it like, you know, in one sitting and I thought, okay, what is it about our, our desire to tie the narrative together? So there's so many cases you have in the course of a career that you could tell stories about. And um, we just decided to do it over 10 chapters. And, and, and along the way, we're going to take that same approach. We, we, we picked a nobody murder. Those murders are the, probably the least favorite from prosecutors. And if you Google it, you'll see that most of these nobody murders, no one wants to touch them because they're so hard to prove in front of a jury. I mean, you're trying to prove a murder, but you don't even have a body. It's like when someone kills his wife and says that she ran off and then uh, files a missing persons report and you can never find, we just had one of these nationally, but we found the woman's body pretty quickly. So we knew we had more than just a missing person. But if you'd never find that body, well, then all kinds of open questions become, you have to prove to the jury two things. Number one, that it's a murder. Yeah. <laughs> missing. And two, that he's the murderer. So it's a much harder case to prove. And, and a lot of DAs just won't touch him. But um, when you have a case like that, I always take a fuse and fallout approach where I just tell the jury, look, I know I can't tell you, uh, we don't even have a body here. Um, so it's going to be hard. I and mean, no one took any pictures of the crime scene because they didn't think it was a crime at the time. They thought it was just a missing person. So we've got no evidence from a crime scene. We've got no body, no photographs of the crime scene. How are we going to tell you what happened on that day? Well, we're going to, uh, if it's a murder, a bomb exploded on that day and, and he did something he shouldn't have done. And, but every bomb is preceded by a fuse. Nothing burns toward the detonation of the bomb. And then the bomb explodes and you got stuff all over the place from the bomb exploding. So the fuse and the fallout will typically tell us what kind of bomb we have. And, and that's what we do in these nobody uh, murder cases. And the same thing could be done with Jesus. If you said, hey, I, I'm going to ignore all the stuff in the crime scene of the New Testament. I'm, not, I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Would I be able to demonstrate what the bomb is all about if I just examined the fuse and fallout of history? That template, that fuse and fallout template is what we used in the book. But I wanted to show people what it looks like in a real case and then talk about what it looks like when it comes to Jesus. So, yeah, we decided to trace a case. We've changed the names. So uh, except for of a course. couple of DAs who know these cases who would say, oh, yeah, that's so this, this piece is from this case and this piece is from that case. Like they know all my cases. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't recognize necessarily which case I'm talking about. But um, we did that on purpose. Um, but, you know, in the end, you get a, a taste for what really happens in real cases. 
And the conversations that I, I, I write about in the book are real conversations, even if they may not have all come from the same case. Sure. Um, I kind of mixed and matched them. So I, I think it, my hope is that it, that part of the book causes people to keep turning the page to see what happens. Even oh, when it comes to Jesus, you know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I said, when I was reading it, I felt like I was kind of following along with a murder mystery novel as I'm reading also about the fallout of Jesus. And so you talked about this, this fuse that leads up to some impactful event, right? And then boom, the bomb goes off and you have the fallout, which is all the debris, all those things that are, that are scattered all over the place. And they lead you to investigate that. And you can do the same thing with Jesus, right? So you go through this book, there's so much in there. I just want to say this for people who, who are thinking about getting the book, not only is the book fantastic, but the footnotes, like we were talking about this kind of off camera, the footnotes, go to the footnotes and you'll get even more information. And then you go to, to the website and there's all of these additional resources, um, which I'm excited. I mean, I've, I've checked out some of them, but I'm even more excited to, to go the full gambit, you know, and get all those resources. I'm super excited about it. So if you don't mind, I want, I want to kind of walk through the book a little bit. I mean, I don't want to give away all the secrets of it, you know, sure, all the, all sure, the yeah. all good stuff. But I do have a couple questions for you um, and Good. just kind of follow up, right? Follow up yeah. on some of the stuff. So um, you put here, like right at the very beginning, so like early on, just like page 11, um, you were talking about how Jesus comes into a context. It's like a perfect time for him to arrive on the scene in this world. And so one of the things you're talking about is how written communication is developed. All right. So you yeah. go through the history of that and say, this was a perfect time where people could actually write stuff down and it could be preserved on the material that they had because mm -hmm. they didn't have computers and stuff like that. Um, and so one, one question I've been asked before, and I think I have a good answer for it, uh, but I want to get your take is why wouldn't Jesus come today when we have things like social media, the internet, YouTube, and things like that, where he can be broadcasted instantaneously. Right. Well, okay. So here's, what's interesting about social media. And I, I don't know that. So if you're like me, you're watching everything that I'm watching in culture. And um, honestly, you're no more trustful of your sources than I am. And we're becoming more and more distrustful. It's not as though this is the perfect time to communicate any claim. This is, we're more polarized than ever before. And, and if you see a claim today, if it's a claim about vaccinations, a claim about COVID, a claim about any governmental policy, for the most part, you don't trust that any of it's true. Even if it's said by a scientist, you don't trust it's true. Even if it's, if it's you know, a, 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 do you believe that we have more confidence in what we're, the information we're getting in the information age than we had previously? I think, honestly, uh, people are more distrustful than ever before. And even if I came and I said, oh, look, I've got a video of this miraculous thing this guy did. Really? How many of those do you get a day where someone's done something that looks like street magic or uh, someone's been raised from the dead? There's several videos in the last five years of preachers globally of one type or another allegedly raising people from the dead and you look at those and you think yeah right now <laughs> you're no more confident you're actually less confident than ever before you have way more information than ever before but you're and this is polls show this that we have access to more information than ever before and we are less trusting of everything we see than ever before so i don't know that just because we're in the, the social media age or the internet age or the information age that we're actually any more prepared to believe what we, I think what we've done is we, this is not, this is social marketing. I mean, all social media is social marketing. Everyone's marketing something. 
if you're just marketing yourself as an influencer on TikTok or Instagram, you're still marketing something. If you're marketing how you looked at last night's uh, wedding where you still were, you know, you attended, you're just really showing the people in your life, look at me, look at me, look at me. This has not made us a better, to my thinking, it's not made us a better people. It's not made us a more social people. It's made us more tribal. And, and, and we've now associated religious ideas and religious notions and religious claims with political parties. Everything is politicized. So my thinking is now is probably the worst time in history, the most distrustful time in history, in my view. Now, can you get can you get the distrusted information out there at a faster pace than ever before? Yes, but it doesn't mean that it's trusted. Mm-hmm. It just means you're able to to Photoshop, computer graphic. I mean, we saw how, how long ago was it? Uh, I was always use this example. Um, Tom Brady was throwing a football in a football throwing machine, allegedly. And he would be able to throw it right to the center of the, the little small little place where the football is thrown from. And mm-hmm. it would throw it back to him and he would throw it right back to the exact same. It just is like three times. Then he says, let's go. And everyone goes, wow, this dude is a, well, it's all, it turns out it was all a, a fake. Yeah. Have you seen the, have you ever seen any of those deep fake videos? No, I haven't. So essentially uh, it's kind of like, it's such good um, ability for people to make it look like if they took you, make it look like you were given a whole speech when you were not saying any of those things at all, but you can't tell. Wow. And so, yeah. And so it's kind of scary because they can make, you know, popular celebrities look like they're doing or saying something when it's like, no, that's not what they were saying at all. They're called deep fakes. Um, and I was thinking about that in relation to this, it's like Jesus came at such the perfect time when we had enough technology in the written you know, communication area where you can write things about him and disseminate it and it stays, um, valuable and doesn't fall apart but not too far advanced where we get to this point where we're like well you can't trust almost anybody because they can just manipulate things or fake things or right you know, that sort of other stuff so you know this is the whole concept of the book at this first part that the thing that i took away is there's a sweet spot in history everything came together it was perfect for this man jesus if he really is who he says he is to come on the scene and so uh a next kind of part that you went into is talking about the Roman empire. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't think about this. The fact that why would Jesus come, you know, during the first century, why wouldn't he come to America? Why wouldn't he go to Russia? Why wouldn't he, you know, whatever. Right. Why didn't he come right. in the middle ages? Why didn't he come in Egypt? Well, yeah, why didn't he save the Jews when they were in Egypt instead of Moses? He could have done it right there. I mean, yeah. Why the timing? Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good point. And I, we, and Paul talks about this and he uses the expression that Jesus comes in the fullness of time. Mm-hmm. And that to me is uh, always been fascinating. We would say, well, yeah, if God decides that this is the time he should come, then we would agree this is the, it's in God's timing. But really what we're seeing and looking at history is why, look, if God is the author of everything, he's the author of history as well. And so all of this happens at, at exactly the time that God wants it to happen. And, and until you have certain things in place, um, the 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 story of jesus doesn't have the legs it needs in order to reach the world so if if jesus arrives when it's just during the persian empire then the story of jesus is it can be spread within the limits of the persian empire and most of these empires once they were destroyed the cultures were, were largely destroyed as well you'll see that the history of of empire building usually involves the destruction of other empires and their gods. Now, now the Roman Empire is different, though, because at least initially they saw it was to their advantage to allow conquered people groups to retain their gods. 
And so they were used to it. Now, granted, they would require something of those people groups as well, but it wasn't necessarily the abandonment of their gods. It was the inclusion of the Roman pantheon of gods, because that was seen as a way of supporting the Roman Empire. The gods of Rome uh, support Rome. You had to support those gods in order to support Rome yourself. It was basically a way of, of, of showing your allegiance to the empire. But the idea that you could keep your own gods was something that this kind of uh, at least light pluralism within the Roman Empire was something that was unique to the Roman Empire. Um, other, other groups had it as well, but this is the empire that ends up taking over the entire known world, or at least having the kind of most muscular force in the entire known world. And that empire ends up being the empire that establishes peace that establishes, that popularizes an alphabet, that popularizes a, a spoken language, that that, pop, that actually builds the infrastructure of roads and postal services that open up opportunities. Those roads that, that Paul walked on to, to, to and those trips that basically exploded the, the, the belief system called Christianity, those roads were not available just a couple hundred years earlier. Those roads were largely built when the infrastructure funds were available during the Pax Romana, the period of peace, in which um, Rome dominated so so heavily that nobody even challenged Rome. And, and that period of peace allowed for the infrastructure, more tunnels and bridges and roads were built during that period. And those are the same tunnels and bridges and roads that, that the message of Jesus traveled on. So there is a window of opportunity based on empire building. Um, even if you look at the wars that precede and thinking along the way that wars usually involve the destruction of other cultures including their religious beliefs, yet Rome comes in and allows the Jews to worship their God and allows the Christians to get started out. Of course, there will, there will be times coming in that first 300 years when Jews will be persecuted. I mean, when Christians will be persecuted, when their faith system will be either stymied or their property taken, or they'll be executed. But the point is there'll be ups and downs in the next 300 years. But they got started because largely they happened to begin in an empire that allow that kind of pluralism and so that's why i think the timing of rome is important compared to other factors in that fuse right that burns up to the first century and and think about that why do we call it the first century i mean it's not the first century it's not the first century humans lived or even recorded history yet something happened that reset the calendars and that that's the thing i think that is so powerful um for the person uh, of jesus is why why would god arrange it in such a way and as you saw in the book in that one chapter i try to overlap those fuses mm -hmm. to show you how small that window of opportunity really is and it is very small and it does ride from about 30 years prior to the common era and for about the first 70 years into the common era so it's about a 100 year period of time there that you would expect something big to happen and the thing that it does happen apparently because we have the first century now but also it, it ends up being grounded not in an event as much as well in the resurrection for sure but in the person of jesus with whom the resurrection occurs so that that to me is is pretty powerful yeah a lot of times people who maybe are early on in their christianity or, or don't really like history that much they they might read about persecution and think that persecution mm -hmm. was this widespread thing in the first century for, you know, for the Christians. And it really wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at it, like you said, they first started off, they were considered a sect of the Jews and the Jews were tolerated by the Romans. It's like, okay, that's fine. You guys can worship, you know, your God just don't cause any problems and, and we'll be fine. And the Jews came along and, or, and the Christians came along and, and the Romans were fine with it. And the, the big issue was, we don't care if you think Jesus is Lord, we just want you to say Caesar's Lord too. That's you don't right. even have to mean it. Just say it. And yes, the Christians right. were like, no, nah, we can't do that. 
And then that started to kind of ramp that up and you would see these little pockets of persecution. Like you said, you have up and down, up and down, but in the very beginning of it, you have the Pax Romana. I mean, you have the peace that allows the apostles to go out in the empire, to go out all over the known world to preach the gospel in a pluralistic world. I mean, we have cancel culture today, but back then they had a pluralistic, you know, it's cool. You believe that we believe these, it's all good. And it gave them an opportunity to have that platform to talk to people about stuff. And not to mention, like you said, the roads, the government, the alphabet, there's so many of those things that you tie in, um, which again, read the book. That's why people need to get the book. It's awesome. Um, so pagan myths, this was one that I always find interesting, right? People would talk about how Jesus was copied from pagan myths. And this is one of those, as we were talking off camera, I said, it's, it's something in the book that, that was almost like a little light bulb moment for me. It was like, Oh, I haven't really thought about it like that before, you know, because the way I've always approached it, people say Jesus was a, you know, copied from pagan myths. And so you compare the stories and you go, nah, they're not really, you know, they're, they're not the same thing. It's not a, a copy. I mean, you're going to have some similarities. I get that. Just, you know, that's a deity. This is a deity. Like, of course, that's going to be a similarity, but that's not really an intimate detail, but you brought up um, some other things about how they're different. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, you ever wonder why, you know, in this generation, we often will see the idea that there were other mythologies that preceded, um, you know, the, 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 the mythologies even that were in existence at the time of Jesus. There were lots of narrative stories. And when I say mythologies, what I mean is um, claims and uh, narrative claims about deity. Now, you can use that word myth, and it can kind of sound like a, a falsehood, a lie. That's not what I'm talking about, that it's a falsehood or a lie. I'm saying that, no, instead, it's really um, a, a narrative about Jesus. And this is how, how C.S. Lewis refers to the word myth as well when he writes about this. But the idea here is that, isn't it interesting that it, it's clear in the first century that, like Paul and the other disciples, they knew, they were familiar with the fact that other people groups believed in other deities, and that there were a number of these myths that were out there in the culture. Paul says this in Acts 17, you people are very religious. You got a temple for everything. So, I mean, it's clear that they were aware of these mythologies, yet they never found that they never like got as, as concerned about them as sometimes modern skeptics can be, right? Well, what, what, what do they know that we have seemed to have forgotten? Well, they knew, number one, that these common expectations that you see in all stories about God and the gods, common attributes that people imagine would probably exist if there is a God, those, those common attributes were not de in detail uh, similar at all. So you might have as a common attribute, oh yeah, I, this, this um, supernatural being is going to enter into the natural world in a supernatural way. Okay, so the origin stories of most, most gods in antiquity, uh, that God's going to appear somehow miraculously, uh, birthed out of the hip of a, another god or emerging out of the side of a mountain. Even Jesus is born of a virgin. But to say that everyone is born of a virgin the way that Jesus is, is, is a lie. I mean, there are, yes, the gods are always coming into the world, not always, but mostly coming into the world in supernatural ways. Also, you can find that most of these gods, if they are, they, well, all of them can work supernatural acts, you know, they can do miracles. 
Well, that shouldn't surprise you. If you think you're thinking about God, he probably can do God-like things. Uh, but what kinds of things they're doing are very different depending on the story. Um, you, you'll see that a lot of these gods, for example, can grant eternal, not all, but some can grant eternal life, or they can live beyond, they can defeat death in some way. But these are the kinds of things, generally speaking, that most of us would anticipate about God if there is a God. Now, what's interesting about that is that I made a list. I just started to read through the mythologies, and I had a couple of research assistants, and this took a couple of passes because you'll read through them, and you're just looking for, like, what do these things have in common? What are all these, you know, the story of Addis? What does it have in common with Osiris? What does it have in common with Mithras? And I'm reading through all these myths, and you'll, you'll find a few, and you'll start writing them down. And then, of course, you'll start to see, well, no, I've, I've heard that before. So now I'm going to go back and read through the myths a second time to kind of catch where I may have missed that before. We did that like four or five times, and we emerged with 15 similarities. 15, now you could probably easily add, no, no mythology has more than about 10. Some have as few as six of these commonalities. So if you wanted to extend the list to 18, and but then only maybe three of these myths would have it, but you could do that, but I think it's going to stretch it. You could back it up to 10, and then you'd have more. But so we're somewhere between six and 10 attributes each of these 15 attributes until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has all 15 attributes. So whatever uh, piece of the pie you might have been thinking about prior to Jesus, the whole pie is called Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, if you're going to suggest that somehow these Jewish authors trying to impress a Jewish culture, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, cobbled together a non-Jewish pagan mythology to impress the Jews, that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, it's actually ridiculous of a stretch. But it is interesting to me that, 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 that Jesus would embody these expectations. Not only that, he, he embodies the types he, he ends up personifying the types of Moses and Joseph and Jonah, and then you can go through a lot of Old Testament saints um, that end up um, having an overarching narrative, some similarities at least, with Jesus. Well, why, why, if that, why would God show up matching the um, expectations of non-Jews and uh, seeming, seeming to be similar to the archetypes of Jews. Why would he do this? Well, because, of course, um, anytime the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get a better result. And this is what Paul is really saying. He's saying, hey, guys, I know you're all religious and you have ideas about God. I'm here to tell you who the real God is. And we know he is a real God because he, he rose from the dead and he matches the archetype and he is the, the Messiah. And so he's, he's basically making the same kind of argument, the argument that Lewis makes when he says that the mythologies are stories about God that come from the minds of poets and human authors, whereas Jesus is the myth that comes from the mind of God that's grounded in what we call real things. And so this story about Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the expectations of the ancients. And by the way, if you wanted to meet the expectations of the ancients, you need to show up at a time when the most ancient myths are being concurrently worshipped simultaneously. And that gives you another window of opportunity, which is also centered right in the first century. So, so you have another fuse that points to that period of time, that window of opportunity. If you're going to show up and meet the expectations of the most people who have expectations, you need to show up at that period of time as well. It just so happens to also be that window in which Jewish prophecy predicts a Messiah and that window in which the Roman Empire provides you a, a means by which to communicate the message. So coincidentally, all three of these uh, windows of opportunity happen to open up in the first century.
Yeah, when you start to see those things, you're like, man, that's some sort of coincidence. But I was thinking as yeah. you were talking, uh, beyond just the Jews, you know, looking at that going, this is this is like a pagan God. Why would you want us to worship that? Imagine the apostles going to the pagans and just passing off a copycat savior. I mean, they would say, we already have those. We like, got that version. Yep. Yeah, this yep. is nothing special. We got like four of those. So yeah. clearly there's something special about Jesus. But here's what one of the things that you pointed out in the book um, that I've also you know thought before is, you know, Jesus didn't come in a vacuum, right? We were talking about this. He came into the context of the Jewish theological perspective, okay? So with that being said, you know, you have the entire, what we call the Old Testament, you know, what Jews would, would call their scriptures, leading all the way up to this time of Jesus. Well, they had expectations there. Yes. Why is it that somehow what we call scholars look back to the first century and go, Jesus copies pagan myths rather than the pagan myths are just corruptions of the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. Yeah, good, good point. I, I, I think there's a couple of things, and I didn't write about all of the different ways you could, you could look at this, but, but Paul even seems to say when he's on uh, Mars Hill, uh, he, he acknowledges there's lots of other stories about gods. That's clear. And you folks even have a, a monument to the unknown God. So you're even so you're even willing to hat tip an unknown God. Um, so so clearly now then he says, but there's a real God over here. Now, now here, he, if all he's doing is comparing um, a bunch of pre-existing myths to a new myth that he wants you to believe in. Well, good luck with that. Like you said, the people who are worshiped in the old myths are going to say, well, yeah, I've already got that. We've already seen that before. It's actually our God right now. And we preceded you. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Here's how we know that this is true. See, we saw this with our own eyes. Now, why would that make a difference? Because all of the ancient myths believed by ancients, there was never anyone within the lifetime of the believer who actually saw the God do those things. These are stories that are not, there's no like claim to eyewitness accounts. It's like these are written mythologies and there's no one, uh, he's saying, no, no, unlike those mythologies, this actually happened really. We saw it. You're trusting in some of these mythologies go back hundreds and thousands of years before the believers who held them, right? And so it's, but he's saying in our generation, we actually saw the resurrection. And that's what separates our claim about God, Jesus, from your claims. And that's the difference, right? And so I think that that difference is huge because you look at the actual mythologies and read them. They're not written as though we they were to be we were to interpret them as eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. Like there's not like, hey, then he did this and then he did that as if these things happened in history. At the end of it, with the statement like John makes where he says, yes, and we saw all of these things. And I'm here to tell you as, as the one who saw these things and we could have written a lot more about these things, but but there wouldn't be enough room to write all these things. That kind of a claim. That these are things that happened in front of us that we touched. These are the things that Peter says, that Paul, that uh, that John says in in First Peter and 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 John's uh, letters, where he's talking about, hey, we're just telling you what we saw with our own eyes. Well, that kind of claim is is not common to the mythologies that came from the minds of poets. Uh, this is common though to the claims of the New Testament authors who wrote these as narratives of what really occurred. And, so and that's if you the want, difference. And if you want to know whether the eyewitnesses are reliable, you got to get Cold Case Christianity, the first book. <laughs> well, that's I mean, yeah. There's so many uh, good books out there. You could you could uh, look at that information. But yeah, that's what I try to do in Cold Case because I'm just looking at it. My, that's that's why I needed to know these are, these are the differences. This is what Lewis says. Yeah, those myths came from the minds of poets. 
Mm -hmm. uh, they're fictional. They're, they're, they're from the poets. Whereas the, the myth that we call Jesus, now he's using the word myth, not to say a falsehood, but to say a narrative about God mm -hmm. comes from the mind of God grounded in what we call real things. He's making that comparison. Myths grant based on, on fictional things and myths based on real things as two different kinds of stories about God. And that's what Paul is doing in Acts 17. And that's what I'm trying to show in this book is that it turns out that God shows up meeting your ex, which why would that surprise us? Because even the pagans are still humans descended from Adam and Eve created in the image of God. They still like all the rest of us from Psalm 19, they still, the, you know, the glory of God is still available to them in the heavens. They can still see that the heavens declare the glory of God. And as in Romans 1, they still are responsible for believing in God because they can see from the created order that there's a creator. So it's those, those pagans are still also thinking about God in the same way. And by the way, even today, and I show this in the book from recent studies, you know, we are not a people that are born at, as a default of, of disbelief. Humans, when they are born, studies show this, that, that this belief in theism, some form of theism is basically bred in the bones. It's, it's part of your DNA. Young people have, a, have are far more inclined to look at a created world as though it's created. Look at the world and see design features that they attribute to a designer. And that study, that, that work's been done on a number of levels in universities all around the world that are not Christian. They're secular universities. Just studying the beliefs of children and the first reactions of children. Yeah, that's why 87, what is it? I think it's more than the number of the percentage globally of people who believe in a higher power is overwhelming. I think 84 is a number that sticks out of my head. Yeah, I, I want to say that too. And I'm just trying to remember it's 84, 87. Anyway, it's one of those two. So, so I think that the vast majority of people believe in a deity, a higher power. The question is, who is it? This is what, what, what um, Paul is saying. Hey, the, you all believe in a higher power. The question is, do you have the right one in view? And yeah. That's and I mean, we're looking at if, if you think about the biblical narrative, if the biblical narrative is true and, and we all started from Adam and Eve and then, you, you know, you get to the global flood and the Tower of Babel, these sort of things, and the nations begin to break off, there's going to be some sort of core truth to all those legends right. and myths. And I mean, you brought this up about C.S. Lewis and, you know, he talks about this is that just because it's a myth doesn't mean it's false. There's still an element of truth most likely there. You just had to find that nugget of truth and see where the legend comes in. And so it makes right. sense when you think about, okay, they all have this common core where we've come from, and these myths have developed over time, and they've been distorted or whatever, and legends added to them, but there's still that negative truth, nugget of truth there. And so when Jesus comes, yeah, he's going to meet that, because it all goes back to the same thing. And so this actually really uh, ties into the next thing I want to talk about, with it, which is the Jewish um, context right? That Jesus came into. And I mean, you know, you could have written an entire book just on this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Each one of these you chapters, know? I felt like we could have done a book on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and one of the things this, this opened up my eyes to the Bible. This was years ago. Probably I was probably been a Christian for about three, four or five years. I don't know, something like that. Um, and this was one of those things where it's like, once I understood this, then the Bible get, began to make sense. And, and it was essentially this, the scheme of redemption. Um, there's a book called the scheme of redemption. And then there was a study I did called the eternal struggle and a couple other things, but essentially what it did is it showed the old Testament was not just a collection of random stories to tell us how to be better people or to show us that God did some really cool things. And he's a really cool God. It was showing us, listen, here's what happened, but then here's God entering into history to bring forth this Messiah and him 
narrowing down this almost bullseye, if you will, you know, this man born of a woman and then of, of Abraham and then, you know, of Israel. And then you come down to the tribe of Judah and he's going to be born here and he's going to come in this, like all these different things. And it narrows it down to where it makes sense. Then when you get to the new Testament and you see people who it says, you know, they are expecting the Messiah. It's like, why were they expecting the Messiah? Because they knew about the prophecies, they knew about the dates, and you talk about some of these dates in the book. But um, before we get there, as you were setting this up um, in chapter four, you talk about every crime scene has two types of evidence: clear and cloaked. And I was like, I I love the terminology um, because you start to talk about prophecy, and this is a the thing that people do again. And I did this; it was an error that I did. When you think about prophecy, you think the Bible says this, the New Testament says that's about Jesus. There's a one to one correlation. It's like, no, that's not the way prophecy works. And so, you know, you, you kind of brought up how there are things that are that one-to-one correlation, but there are other things that, that aren't necessarily like that. So you want to kind of explain the difference between clear and cloaked evidence? Yeah, I just thought when I first heard a, a, a preacher talk about prophecy, because um, I, I came into a church that really wasn't um, necessarily going to talk about prophecy as part of their Sunday services, but they brought in a guest speaker. Maybe it was on a Wednesday. But anyway, I heard this guest speaker talking about prophecy, and I was so un- un- underwhelmed. I was unimpressed with it because uh, by that time, I at least knew where to quickly find these prophecies. If they said, hey, it's in Ezekiel, I would flip over to Ezekiel, and I'd go, and that doesn't even seem like it's talking about what he's even saying it's talking about. That doesn't even seem like that's even messianic. I mean, <laughs> I mean, some of this stuff, you know, they're pulling out a psalm, sounds like David's talking about David, or it sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like, come on. Why would it? I mean, I don't think the Jews today would consider that messianic, and of course they don't. And so then the question becomes, well, then why should you trust what the New Testament authors are saying? But but the difference really, and a lot of the New Testament authors are referring to things that you would read if you went back and chased them down. You look at them and say, oh yeah, that's really comes like a bit of a stretch. And and so if you've ever like worked with Mormons, you'll know that Mormons do the same kinds of things. Well, they'll take a prophecy. Uh, from the Old Testament or from the scriptures of the New Testament, and they'll say, this is talking about Joseph Smith. And you're thinking, ah, come on now, that doesn't, that's not talking about Joseph Smith. Um, that's talking about something else entirely. Well, I want to be careful, we're not doing the same thing. Well, it turns out, it, what helps you is to understand that there are differences in evidence. You know, if you've got a fingerprint at a crime scene, and if you've got a good database, you can actually identify the bad guy from the fingerprint by running it in the database. Same is true with DNA now. The databases are getting bigger and bigger. So sometimes you can do that. It'll tell you who the guy is. Not always, but sometimes. Um, That's really clear then that that piece of evidence, and you can see this, you know, if I've got blood at the scene and it's not the victim's blood, this is probably evidence of the crime at some point. I mean, at least it seems more reasonable that it is, but you'll also find that's clear evidence, but you'll also find the scene, you know, uh, a torn piece of cloth or a button or um, some hair or something. You're not even sure like whose it is. Whose button is that? Did that, was that button laying there for a day before this crime even occurred? Maybe it's not even part of the crime scene. And if it's not, does it belong somehow to something that was the victim's? Does it belong to a friend of the victim's before? Does it belong to the suspect? Well, you don't know that until you finally meet the suspect. And if he's got a button missing from his shirt, well, now I've got a good piece of evidence. It wasn't clear. It was cloaked at first. But it does now, afterwards, in hindsight, confirm the suspect. It doesn't point to the suspect from the onset, but it can confirm the suspect in hindsight. And that's what you do with prophecies. Some of these are really clear. They're, they're obviously talking about the Messiah. They are considered messianic even by Jews today. They were considered messianic by Jews then. 
But a lot of these are cloaked. They're like the button that once you've identified the suspect, you'll be able to match it up and you'll say, okay, now you would never say we should not collect the, the buttons at the crime scene. Of course, you're going to do that. They are evidential. The question is, are they the same as the other? No, they're different, but they are no less important. And I think what happens is we sometimes will not make that distinction between clear and cloaked. And then for a lot of people that are like, no, that doesn't seem clear at all. Well, it still has value. It has great value because enough pieces, if I have a button and part of your torn shirt and some of your hair, well, the more of these kinds of cloaked evidences I have that match you, the better the suspect is and that, 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 you know, that the relationship between cloaked evidences and the suspect. So when the New Testament authors are mentioning cloaked verses of scripture, that's still legitimate. And the more they have that point to the same suspect, the more reasonable the inference. And so that's why I try to cover that. Yeah. So, you know, one time I was in the a mall in Maryland when I lived up there and there was a group of Orthodox Jews that were walking through and I was like, you know, let me go, let me go talk to these guys. So I, I tried out this tactic and I only got to do it on them. I've never done it again because I don't really meet a lot of Orthodox Jews, but I walked up to them and I played completely dumb as if these were my questions when really they were just the arguments of the New Testament authors on why Jesus was the Messiah. So, you know, I, I asked them, I said, hey, who do you think Isaiah 53 is talking about? And, you know, oh, well, you know, this, this is the Messiah figure or whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, how is it that we are healed by his wounds? You know, like something like that. Or right. I asked him about Abraham. You know, I said, hey, um, what do you think Abraham was thinking when God told him to kill his son? Like, why would he do that? You know, and, and right here it says, it says, we will go up and we will return. It's almost like he had an expectation that he was going to come back. You know, I was like picking right. on him like that. Right, right. And you could see them. They were like, oh. Like, I've never thought about that before, right? But then you get something else where it's, um, like you said, from the Psalms, or you get even Isaiah 7, which, I, you know, I've, I've had people get mad at me for saying this, but it's like, Isaiah 7 had an original context. Right. You know, this is not some sort of just one-to-one -one parallel to Jesus. I mean, if you look at the context of Isaiah 7, it was a promise to that king. It was not something that was talking specifically just about the Messiah. But as you said, in hindsight, you go, wow, that's a really close parallel, or yeah, the thing that happened to Jesus was the same thing that happened back there. Yes, you know? and Paul talks about how these figures in the Old Testament were types of the one who was to come, mm -hmm. and, and so that, that is something that is not unusual, um, that you would say, well, there's nothing in the story of Moses that predicts somebody's going to come who's going to possess these, these characteristics, Yet, this typing that you see in the Old Testament, um, you'll see it over and over again, that, it, that subsequent uh, historical figures uh, in God's design um, are, are similar to their predecessors, and they're part of this long tradition. And then Jesus comes as, as another part of that long tradition. And I think the idea there, and, I think, and, and to say that no Jews were ever converted in the first century is not true. And to say, of course, then, of course, a lot of pagans were converted in the first century. And a lot of that, I bet, was because there, this, the, the, uh, the person of Jesus was not entirely foreign to their, their thinking about the nature of God. So that all you have to do is just, just describe Jesus as he was. And both non-Jews and Jews alike would find something in the description of Jesus that they would resonate with and go, that sounds like God. Well, a lot of that's because their expectations were met so robustly in the person of Jesus. And so I think we just don't, we, we kind of lose all of that when we, we step, and that's why I, I, whenever I read Acts 17 now, I read it differently. 
because now I'm, I'm thinking about, well, look, Paul knew that those other mythologies were replete within his generation, that those people at in Athens, he was a reader of the poetry. He was a reader of the mythology. And it's clear he has access and, and knowledge of uh, ancient writers when he's talking to the people on Mars Hill. So, so that's why I think he's able to leverage the similarities to, to discuss Jesus. And the only difference, of course, is he's arguing that Jesus is the life of Jesus is being told to you by people who were eyewitnesses, whereas no one can do that with your mythologies. Mm -hmm. No one could ever have done that with your mythologies because those came from the minds of poets, not from the observations of eyewitnesses. There's the difference. And that difference between the mind of a poet and the observation of an eyewitness makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. One of the studies that I teach to, um, you know, churches is I call it setting the stage. And essentially, I go through the Old Testament and show how God was in the whole time setting the stage for Jesus to come into a context, you know. And so one of the questions I ask right off the get-go is, you know, let's say Jesus shows up and John the Baptist goes, there's a lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And they say, what does that mean? Because they don't have sacrifices, you know, or they don't even know what a lamb is. And, and so God had did this whole thing where he's setting up a, a context. And you talked about typology, right? All the sacrifices in the Old Testament are a type. The characters in the Old Testament, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, these guys are types of things that Jesus fulfilled. And then you have the direct prophecies. But then on top of that, you know, we have the um, the pagan myths, which have that nugget of truth. And so all these things come together and you realize not only the timing of it, but also just the context of who this person has to be. And so one part of your book that was interesting, you talk, um, you go through the prophecy in Daniel, which I thought was awesome because most people take that prophecy down a different route. And I hold the exact view that you were referencing there. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to get off. It's really technical. You, you, you kind of yeah. got to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, but essentially you were showing how the, the prophecy in Daniel, the 69 weeks leads right up to this very short window time frame of when the Messiah is going to have to come. Um, and so if you're interested in that, there's some material in your footnotes and there's also other books on that, but yeah, but I she, can tell you too, if you, if you're somebody who says, I'm not sure we can dial this down to the, the level of, of, um, of precision in terms of dating. Well, you can get, look at generalities, this idea, this larger, broader uh, period of time where you're, you're operating between the uh, promise to uh, restore Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem, that edict, that decree to do that. And you can argue about which decree are we talking about? Okay, fine. So that means you're not quite sure of which century in BC this decree occurs. Okay. But then we have also the other cap end is the destruction of the temple. Well, historically, we know when that occurred, that occurred in 70 AD. So you're going to end up with a broader window. And that's really all I'm using when I'm talking about the fuse that presents that little window of opportunity. I don't have to be precise and take the, take a, 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 um, a very specific and maybe niche view of Daniel in order to get that window. I can take the broadest view and you're still going to have that window. And when you overlap the cultural, prophetic and spiritual windows, that's where you get this real small hundred year period. And that's why I wanted to show it. And by the way, I, that's not something that I discovered because I, I was determined to get a window around Jesus. Um, that's just what happens when you look at the history and you end up with this weird window. I didn't really know how tight that window was going to be, but I just knew from my studies, you know, years ago when I first became a Christian, but back then, you know, I wasn't trying to write a book. So I was just kind of like at the point where wherever I was satisfied, I would move on to the next thing. And so I just had, a, I, would, I would call this like a blogger's 
uh, level of confidence about what I discovered that was enough to satisfy me. I did. I knew I had to do more if I was going to put it in front of a jury. And sometimes what books are is those are the things you're putting in front of a jury. Every detective at some point satisfies his own question, but then knows he has to do a bunch more to satisfy the upcoming questions of jurors. And so I had that first level of confidence and I just needed to, to, to mine it out. Yeah. I mean, I've had plenty of cases before where I reach a certain point and I go, okay, that guy did it. Right. But I know uh, I need more in order to take it to court. Yeah, that's right. You know, like that's I can't right. just, I just, I, I like you can see it and there's a difference between what you know and what you can prove. And you yeah, just, well, that's why you're called into this work is you came into this work with a theological understanding first. I didn't have that luxury. So I had spent a good part of my career nearly 10 years with, without be, as not being a Christian. Um, but at some point, you know, you, 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 you started off this way. So I expect you at what, 25 years or so younger than me to uh, take on this, 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 this calling and, uh, and help people to see that there's a connection between how we look at evidence and we can't help but do it this way. Mm-hmm. So you might think, oh, I don't want to take that approach, that evidential approach. Well, really, when your kids come home and you're assessing their claims, you'll suddenly become quite an evidentialist, okay? You might be presuppositional about maybe your apologetics, but when it comes down to whether your kids did it or not, you're suddenly evidential. It turns out that that's just how we operate in the world most often in other categories. That's why we're so fascinated, I think, with detective stories, because all of us are a bit of a detective in some aspect of our life. And then we get to see what it looks like when it's very muscular. So, so in the end, I think that's why this approach is important for us when we're talking about issues of faith. Well, like you said, it's it's the natural, it's the natural way people function. You know what I mean? Right now, I'm studying in in my master's degree, um, like apologetic systems, right? And so you have these different systems, and I I like certain aspects of certain one, and I like certain aspects of this one. I don't like this one, whatever. And, and one of the ones that I like, I go, well, I like this, but this is really more geared towards intellectuals. Like, I'm, I'm not going to really be able to use this too much on the, the average person in the pew or the average person at the office. Uh, but the evidentialist view, it, it's pretty it's pretty good because you can use it on most people. It's how people think. And so you said to kind of bring us wholesale to where we've been talking this far, I like this quote uh, in chapter five, you said, there's now an area of overlap that takes advantage of humanity's common expectations of God and also leverages the opportunities the Roman Empire provided to spread the good news of God's arrival. So not only do you have the context of the Jewish expectation, the pagan myth expectations, um, but you also have the just perfect timing of the Roman Empire and how it gives the advantage for the message to go out. So that's yep. that's kind of the first part of your book. Um and then we, you know, we move into another part, chapter seven, you start moving into the fallout, I guess I would call it, where you, where you talk about now, here's the impact of this guy on the world. And th- this was another aspect of it where I was like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't really connect those dots before, right? So I wanted to ask you about it. So you said this on page 125, a desire to better reveal the identity of Jesus and the reality of heaven initiated a movement unique in history of architecture, art, and music. So you have a little bit of background in, in like the cultural arts. And so this mm-hmm. kind of kind of hits home for you, right? How Jesus has that effect on culture. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about this worldview that we happen to be in. This is a an artistic worldview. Uh, That's why there's been a battle even within the church in the earliest centuries about how much art artistry should be allowable in a space of worship. You know, the iconic uh, to be allow icons of any kind in in a church setting. Are that these are things that we should re reject because they become idols. They become um, so so. I, a lot of this. Why is this discussion even happening? Because so much about the Christian worldview involves creativity. Um, this is reflected in the nature of our God that we worship. We're all designed in his image. So we should not be surprised to find that we have a creative impulse, especially when the one thing we see early on in the very first pages of scripture is the God's ability to create. So it's not like this should surprise us. And this is the one place. This is a very much a musical worldview. Um, songs were a very important part of worship and of life in Judaism. The Psalms that were in songs that were written by David, for example, were probably sung by Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Then you have uh, letters that encourage us to be singing hymns, to be singing songs to each other, and that's part of the earliest traditions. And you have claims about the deity of Jesus that are beautiful claims, that he is light, that he is, um, that we have a promise of a heaven in which there'll be no tears, in which God will resolve all injustice. Um, and these are, are, are amazingly beautiful notions about the future. And so when Christians met, they sought to embody these promises and these descriptions of Jesus in the spaces in which they met. And so, you know, that's why churches don't stay, last long, um, don't, um, and historically, do not stay long in the Romanesque period, the heavy building material period. They move from kind of like dark cavernous spaces that had to get larger and larger in order to uh, support the groups that were meeting there. And eventually there was a desire to, um, to embody the Christian claims in the architecture, claims about light and beauty and, and a heaven. And spaces became light, heavenly uh, spaces pretty quickly within the history of Christian architecture. And that architecture required some innovation and some engineering. Dome engineering, for example, the you know, Muslims used domes as well. A lot of early believers in different sects used domes, but nobody uh, made a, an art form of the dome like Christians and to the point where the city of Rome became the city of domes uh, because there's so many dome structures were being built and those domes were being painted and lit in ways. Just some of these domes are amazing just in terms of the way they use diffused light in uh, either in um, pocket walls or in parallel walls or uh, ways to bring light into the space that you're thinking, where's that light coming from? These, these are, this is before electricity. This is how do I use, how do we get the exterior light into the inner surfaces of the dome in a way that you can't tell where it's coming from? So it just feels like you're in this heavenly place and not just a bunch of windows or, well, of course, there's light coming in because there's windows. No, that this creativity that was, you'll take a look at the cross sections of domes. Take a look at the cross section of St. Peter's. I've got that in the book. I want you to be able to see the kind of architectural innovation that had to occur to accomplish this end effect. And then when you look at how stained glass is used, you know, that Gothic cathedrals in which you have the, you know, the flying buttresses on the outside of the building, which form the structure, allowing you to use the walls now as glass surfaces, because they no longer support the roof, the flying buttress supports the roof. Well, now you've got an opportunity to do art on the glass that you didn't have prior to this. And what you see then are modern kind of museums and conservatories for art and music that we call churches that, that populated the landscape and provided places where, you know, think about why do you think so much music 
was birthed within the church. Why do you think that Christians are so responsible for both the history and progress of music from musical notation to developments of harmony, major and minor scales, the innovations that all of us now leverage for every form of music globally came out of a tradition largely um, created by Christians. Well, think about it. What's the one place where every week in America, someone is singing on singing music on a, on a stage in front of an audience. Well, that's called the church. And this has been going on for you know centuries. And, and this actually leads to a culture of art and singing that we can make a decision about whether we want to continue as leaders in that culture or not. So I think what happens is we sometimes will innovate and then at some point we will stagnate, right? We will not continue to innovate uh, for any number of reasons, you know, it's not, in a similar way, the Muslims were incredibly and deeply involved in the sciences until religious thinkers within Islam began to shut down the project. So you have to be careful uh, not to allow errant thinking about the theology to guide your future. The theology of Christianity opened up the sciences. I talk about that in one chapter of the book. It's science is what it is today because of the igniting attributes of a Christian worldview. In both, in both of these concepts, the, the art and the science, right? It comes back to the worldview. Like, why did these things happen? And it's because Christians have this perspective of the, you know, the nature of man and the nature of the world. So I wanted to um, bring up two, two quotes here. Francis Schaeffer, you should probably know him, right? Yep. He, wrote a, he wrote a book, uh, How Should We Then Live? And he said this, he said, but we should realize that it, talking about the Renaissance, was not the rebirth of man. It was the rebirth of an idea about man, right? So yeah. your, your philosophy about what man is will kind of dictate how you're expression or expressing that in art and in culture. And then he said later in the book, talking about the famous sculpture of David, he said, the David was the statement of what the humanist man saw himself as being tomorrow. In this statue, we have man waiting with confidence in his own strength for the future. But you point out in the book, which is so so cool. This is the thing that I never thought about before, because I'm not a big arts guy and cultural guy like this, is that Christianity formed these structures like you talked about, right? I mean, Rome became the city of domes and then the architecture behind that. And if like I've been to Europe before, I don't know if you, you've probably been to Europe, I'm yeah. sure, but you go to some of these cathedrals or some of these buildings. Right. It is like you said, it is like a heavenly place. You go there and you're like, wow. Like, right. Wow. Is, and so the question is, is it just our effort to be like to create palaces? No, it's not that there's, I'm sure there is an effort uh, amongst lots of architects in secular settings or non-religious settings just to kind of over just to kind of um, impress with the opulence of something, because it kind of reflects on my my I must be somebody if I live in a place like this. Well, that's kind of what we do. Right. But this is different. This was about trying to recreate a, a, an environment that better matched the promises of Scripture and the descriptions of scripture. And so that's what motivated Christians to take the next step. Like, do you really think that, 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 that dark caves with, that are cool and you know, they're made out of the mud brick of the first century, they, they certainly get the job done and 30 people can meet in these places, but they don't, they don't inspire you to think about the things we're reading about in scripture. Like you have to almost kind of like imagine you're not in this mud hole in order to experience this scripture. But at some point, they created the spaces that were that resonated with the very things they were reading in scripture. You know, this is I remember the first time, <coughs> pardon me, we walked into a, a big modern warehouse church. That was the first church we ever walked into that wasn't, you know, 
that we, we thought we would go to by choice, me anyway. So, so we walk into this setting and Susie leaned over and she says, you know, it doesn't seem very holy. Mm. And I thought, yeah, but I was only there for her. So even if I yeah. just wanted her to be happy, but, but, but I would have agreed with that. It seemed rather utilitarian. Um, that and that was the the mission statement of architects that tried to to, to move this utilitarian space that'll get the job done to a place that would inspire, that would be awe inspiring, because the 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 first believers at Book of Acts they were said to be inspired in this way mm-hmm. to have a sense of awe, and so they started to create spaces that did the spaces themselves. I mean, you walk in, you feel like I'm in a special place. Yeah, and you even bring up how. Um... At first, you know, with the Christians, it took a little bit of a transition, and it was really once we hit the edicts of Milan and Thessalonica, when Christians began to be able to create art. And so I was thinking about how, you know, sometimes when you're investigating somebody and you're looking at their background to see, uh, do they have ties to certain people or have they done these sort of crimes before, you'll see a pattern, right? Kind of like a a pattern of how often they get arrested, but then there might be like a gap, you know, there's like a five-year gap where they don't pop up on the radar, and it takes you a second and you realize, oh, it's probably because they were incarcerated. Yeah, they're incarcerated. Right? Like that's that's the reason why they didn't do anything because they yeah, were when in jail you got, for this five when you years. got a murder spree and then suddenly it goes quiet for five years. Well, he got picked yeah. up for some misdemeanor or, or lesser crime, you know, yeah. they put him in jail for five, not a murder. So, yeah. Know? So these so these Christians, you know, you have this period where they're not able to do anything, but all of a sudden when you have peace and they and they kind of are set free, then it's like boom, cultural revolution. You know where the yeah. art starts. Yeah, under, so, under persecution, it's true. You don't have patronage, you don't have property to to to, to work on because a lot of this stuff is is, is painted on p- certain properties that are public that you're not afraid to paint on, that you're not afraid to express your faith on. So there is a period, of course, when you're like I bet you right now, uh, Christian art in China is pretty minimal. That was my right? question. I was going to yeah. say, do you think that freedom produces opportunity for art? Because we don't see a lot coming out of North Korea or China right now. Yeah, I think that's probably why. I mean, I think a lot of this freedom is the, the biggest threat to what we believe right now. And it's a theological threat. Think about it. Uh, if God is love, the thing that he stands on, the love stands on is free agency. Without free agency, mm-hmm. you can't have love. The biggest challenge we have is our freedom to make choices, to even choose for God. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the freedom to choose God, then no one's going to choose him. Now, of course, we have the freedom, uh, and you'd even have that freedom if somebody denied you that freedom. You could still make that freedom in your head. Yes. But I'm just saying, if freedom is the thing that most people will try to, to limit to control us, right? And But it turns out that freedom is what's required. Without free agency, you can't have creativity either. If you aren't free, if everything is just automatically propelled by your genes, you're not really being creative. You're just being expressive of what you were destined to express anyway. You didn't make free choices. Should I use red or green here? Should I highlight this side? Should I make him skinny or make him a little heavier? Like, how should I depict him? No, you're not free to make those choices, but you're not being able, you have no ability to be creative. So I think, yeah, freedom ends up being the thing that if you wanted to pull the plug, uh, on on almost anything, you start by pulling the plug called freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're enslaved, it's going to be kind of hard to ha- take some free time and start creating art. You right. Know? And so, if I can convince you too that you ought not freely think those things, even mm-hmm. if I can convince you to to limit your own freedom of thought, well, then I can even control your thoughts. And that's why we got to be careful when we're in a culture that tries to limit your freedoms. And this is what you see, though, in the first 300 years, right, where Christians still had their freedom to worship if they did it 
in, in secrecy. So they have within their own community. And you still see that the earliest art is the kind of art that's in catacombs or it's in, in small places that are we're still digging these places up, right? You don't see it in public squares, on public buildings. Big churches, for example, that celebrate this worldview are not going to be possible in the first 300 years. And so that's why it has to, when it does change. Now, of course, here's the other problem is that power also corrupts. So you're always weighing the, uh, like, I love to read the Antonicene Fathers because I believe that those are probably giving us the clearest and purest unadulterated views of earliest believers. Because once you become the religion of the empire, then you start to see corruption within the belief system. Mm -hmm. right because power corrupts now i want to control people i want everyone now you're under my thumb even the people who had religious ideas would put you under their thumb so so i think that you have to kind of balance that right like where on that 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 decree of milan or the edict you know where which side are you looking for evidence if you're looking for evidence about the purest thoughts then i think you stay on the front front side of the edict if you're looking though for the uh, most freedom to express ideas about jesus you're probably on the other side of the edict yeah, and Jesus has another fallout aspect here where you move into the education explosion, right? How Christianity really is the the springboard for um, modern education. And so you had a um, – I actually want to go to the book right here because this – you know, your graphic arts, if, if nobody knows, you, your graphic arts are just fantastic. You should have been one of those guys back in the Renaissance painting stuff, but uh, here, here on page 169, you give this, like, list of people. I'm not going to read them all, but – I was, I learned something here, you know, just about education. So you have like kindergarten, uh, that was, right. that was, that was a Christian guy. Um, Thomas Hopkins education for, you know, for the deaf or Lewis Braille. Hence why we, you know, call it Braille, right? right. Education for the blind. Um, Johann Gutenberg printing press, Martin Luther, universal education, um, John Calvin, elementary education, you know, and you go on and on and on like education was birth out of christianity why well, and you... why and why would that be the case right you would yeah. think look there's not it's not as other ancient people groups didn't educate their their people of course it did but when we think about modern education the way that we're thinking about it in terms of like university campuses but that that really is indebted to christianity because this mm -hmm. idea of a campus in which a body of a number of students will come to a faculty that's resident that ends up graduating you from year to year to year progressing you to a point of when you get a diploma because you completed your curriculum this is an idea that is born out of three institutions all founded by christians in bologna paris and oxford and it turns out that those three universities give birth to 24 or so uh, daughter universities that give birth to the scientific revolution that most of the scientists who founded the major disciplines in science were coming out of those universities so you you have this progress of education that is unique to christianity and why would that be the case well like other monotheistic groups we were always people of the book but you could say this of other groups but Jesus is very unique, and when he commissions his disciples, he commissions them not to make converts. He commissions them to make disciples, which means you're going to have to, to disciple somebody, I mean, you've got to teach them something. To say that you are now to go make disciples to the ends of the earth means that I'm about to launch the largest educational mission in the history of missions, because I don't want you just to tell about me i need you to disciple these folks teach them and and teaching them it means that sometimes you're going to find people groups that, that really can't read yet so you're going to teach them how to read you're going to find people groups that don't have an alphabet 
don't have even have the mechanisms by which to read. You're going to have to create an alphabet for them. And you'll see that that kind of work becomes the life calling of a lot of Christian missionaries. And that ends up, you know, blossoming into, um, you know, the monasteries, the cathedral schools, and ultimately the universities. And, and so a lot of what we today would ignore the top 15 universities in the world today. They just go on any, um, just, just search for it online. If you thought, well, what's, what are the, what are the rating organizations that rate the top universities I could send my kids to? And you'll find there's a global list of the top 100 universities. You go get and get those lists. I guarantee you when you get done, more than 70 of the top 100 will have been founded by Christians. That's more than every other group who have formed universities combined. And that's true actually in the history of universities. More Christian universities have been founded historically than all the other groups combined. And a lot of these groups had a head start. You know, if you're a Buddhist, Buddhists had a head start. They could have started uh, universities much earlier and had a bunch more on the planet even today, but it's not the case. Yeah, um, I mean, go back to the is, whole, it's the whole Christian worldview, right? I mean, the yeah. Christian worldview says this is an objective world and this world has the thumbprint of the creator in it. And we want to go right. research it and, and learn about it. And then we want to teach other people about it. But yep. my question for you is why do you, and maybe this is just my impression, so maybe I should start off and ask you, do you think Christians have fallen behind in this arena? I don't think we've fallen behind in terms of our ability to master subjects. And you'll see this in the sciences. It's not as though, yeah, you know, Christians who are scientists are lesser. No, we still are innovators. We're still award winners. Um, it's not as though Christians who are philosophers are lesser. Well, you know that from William Lane Craig, that that's not true that uh, the Christian philosophers are at the top of the game. Um, so the question then becomes, well, what, what would inhibit us from continuing to be at the top of the game? Now, look, a lot of our view related to science today, let's be honest, is political. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see science weaponized politically to limit our freedoms. That's what we're experiencing right now, right? That's what a lot of people will complain we're experiencing. Now, whether you, wherever you fall on that view, whether that's true or not, we got to be careful not to see science as the enemy because politics can politicize and can weaponize anything. Mm -hmm. And it has. Everything. As they do. Yeah. I mean, even the media that you're watching, the entertainment that you're choosing, everything can be weaponized by politics. Just don't allow your interest in sciences get weaponized uh, so that suddenly now you are finding yourself uncomfortable uh, and, and kind of conceding and releasing to the other side, to secularists, all things science. That has not been the history of science. Science is, and I try to write about this in that one chapter, we've dominated the sciences. We have historically dominated the sciences. We have more science fathers than any other group combined. We've won more Nobel prizes in the sciences than any other group combined. We, we've dominated this historically. Why would you surrender that now? It, by the way, this has been true both before Darwin and after Darwin. Our activity after Darwin, I got a part of that chapter to show you who I'm talking about. We've pushed that out to the footnotes. You know, there's there's about 50 pages of footnotes. But like you said, there's about 270 pages of footnotes that are on the PDF file. Because I wanted, if I'm going to mention 950 Christian scientists and the impact they've had on science, I just don't want to say there's 950. I want to show you who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so that's all in the footnotes. But in, I think I even have the dates in which they live are in the footnotes. So we try to be as thorough as we could. Um, Again, writing a popular popular level book, right? So at some point, we got to remember this is not meant to be, you know, the academic work. It's meant to. I'm trying to throw the ball in a way that people will catch the ball, mm -hmm. and then decide to run with it toward the gospel. 
Yep. If they're not doing that, I don't know why we're doing any of this. If I, if I, if we're not helping people to kind of remove the barriers, to have so much confidence that this is true, that they'll share it with others. That's another thing we're trying to do with apologetics, right? It's not just that we're answering the questions that people have, which we want to do. But what I'm trying to do is to get people so enthusiastic about what it is that's true, that they're willing to share it with others. Because if we don't do that, um, this is just becomes a faith that, that dies. Yeah, it's like, generation. what are we, yeah, what yeah. are we doing? Exactly. And I mean, that's the beauty about this book is it, like you said, it's, it's a part where you can wet somebody's appetite and go, Hey, check this out. Check that light bulb, you know, going off in your head. Yeah. Now go chase that thread, you that's know, right. and you, and you give them the resources to be able to go do that. And so I just, I want to make a, another point on the whole science thing. Um, I've, I found a quote by Alfred North Whitehead. So if anybody knows him pretty famous guy uh, mathematician or whatever so he wrote science in the modern world and he's not a christian as far as my understanding that goes but he said this when we compare uh this tone of thought in europe with the attitude of other civilizations when left to themselves there seems to be one source for its origin it must come from the medieval ins insistence on the rationality of god conceived yeah. as the personal energy of jehovah with the rationality of a greek philosopher so you know he says why, why, why is science like birthed out of this Christian worldview? It's because they understand that, or they think that God is a rational being. And so the world's going to be rational. That's right. That's right. And that, that pre and what preceded them was a pantheon of irrational, capricious, um, debaucherous uh, pantheon of gods that was not only um, vile and would steal your wife if you turned your back <laughs> on them uh, and kill each other, uh, that they were un un unpredictable. Um, and so this idea of a singular, orderly, predictable God who creates an environment that he is not, he's actually detached from, he's, he's distinct from, he's not detached, he's distinct from his environment. In other words, you won't, um, if, you, if your view is that the lightning is caused by Zeus, then there's no point in studying the cause of lightning from a natural perspective, because you think that Zeus is in every lightning bolt. But if you think that God is distinct from his creation, well, now you can start to study the attributes of God. Like, why would he create these? Why would he create this environment, this world the way it is? Does it tell us anything about the nature of God? But we're not attributing every violent act in nature to God. So that's the kind of thing that we, uh, that the Christian worldview did in the sciences. Also, there's a rich tradition of, of, of studying things physically, not just intellectually. Remember science before it was called science was called natural philosophy because we didn't have the ability to confirm empirically through observation, the things we were thinking were true about the universe or thinking were true about microbiology. There was no microscope to look at the biology we were thinking about. But, but in the end, it was Christians who had a rich monastic tradition of getting their hands dirty that had no problem cutting up cadavers and, and, you know, looking and they didn't see matter as vile and unworthy of study to begin with. That's another view of the ancients held. I got another you know, chapter, part of the chapter where we talk about that with comparing the other worldviews in which matter was in some ways denigrated, like it's not worthy of study and based on, you know, a number of different ancients who felt this way, but Christianity comes in with a different view. And that's really what makes the difference in terms of why Christianity has the kind of power that ignites the sciences in a way that other, and from the science fathers, just the, the scientists who have, um, 
changed the, the history of science, that founded and fathered the major scientific disciplines, those folks also wrote about Jesus. And if you read their journals, and that was hard work to find the journals, to find out where online, for example, there's a university who still has the journals published of Kepler or whoever it may be. And to read what they wrote about Jesus, well, the whole story of Jesus can be most robustly reconstructed, not from the church fathers in the first 300 years, but from 2,000 years of the science fathers. So you'd have to destroy the entire history of the science fathers in order to eliminate Jesus as a uh, uh, historical figure, because they wrote about him so often and why they were inspired by Jesus in their personal letters and in their journals. So you're not going to be able to destroy Jesus by simply destroying the New Testament. That's what we're trying to do in this book, to show you that it makes no sense at all that a guy like Jesus, a nobody who'd never traveled very far, who only had three years of public ministry, who never had a family, never led an army, never ruled a nation, never wrote a sonnet, never even wrote a book about himself, never had children to extend his legacy, wasn't even like he was you know, chased by the people who had power and rejected by the people who were religious and abandoned and denied by his own followers and eventually falsely accused and mocked and brutally beaten and had to borrow a grave. This is the guy who's a nobody. And if you look at all the other somebodies in the first century, you won't even recognize most of the names. I got a list of them in the last chapter. Mm -hmm. All the other deities and religious leaders, all the other people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah. These folks had no impact on history like Jesus. So how is it that Jesus had this impact? Well, here's how I think it can help us think about it. If there's no other fictional character who's ever changed history, and whose fingerprints are now in every important aspect of culture, art, music, literature, education, science, and even other world religions, like Jesus of Nazareth. So if there are no other fictional characters who had this kind of impact, it's reasonable to infer that Jesus is not a fictional character. This actually speaks to the historicity of Jesus. Two, there are no other mortal humans who have had this kind of impact on history. So it's reasonable to infer that he's not a mortal human. What I'm saying here is that there's enough, it seems to me that there's at least a case could be made from this impact in the fingerprints of Jesus that he's both historically viable and more than human. Yeah, so there is a case for the historicity and deity of Jesus here. It blows my mind that there are still people out there who think Jesus wasn't a historical figure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's like if you ever read any sort of history book or any sort of science or anything, because like as you laid out in the book, he had the most impact, and how is this possible on culture, on art, on music, on science, on, on other religions that you talk about in the book? He had all this impact, yet he wasn't a real figure, you know, not to mention all the archaeological evidence and, and historical evidence that we have for him. So that's, it, it's great to think about that Christians not only had the great impact in bringing forth science, so you talk about this in the book, how there's certain um, big spikes in scientific achievement, right? And they all center around things that Christians were doing, right? And you you say in the book though that right there in the middle, Muslims. Yep. Right. So I had this thought. I wanted to get your take on it in your research. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that I've read before, now I could be wrong on this, but I've I've, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I've read right. a little bit about this, is that that Islam, and I know they they would deny this, but Islam has stolen some theological things from Judaism and Christianity. And so my thought is, if that's the case, it makes sense to me why you would have Muslim philosophers and other Muslim intellectuals 
you know, during, during the time when they were first getting started, why they would have also an impact in these areas, because they're basically coming with a quasi-Christian, quasi-Judaistic worldview. Does that make right. sense? No, no, ab- absolutely. So I'll give you an example of that. That, that, that. There's an extension. There's three. These are, these are all connected monotheistic religions within that, that begin with the foundation of Judaism. And then from that, so, you know, Islam accepts uh, Judaic history and to a certain level and builds upon that. They accept some truth claims about Jesus and they build upon that. So they all borrow some of these same igniting factors. And if you look, for example, at the impact of Jews in the sciences, you'll be equally impressed uh, because if you combine, I think it's like almost 30% of Nobel Prize laureates have been Jewish, about 67% or so, I think 65% have been Christian. So together they, they end up, you know, the vast majority of Nobel laureates are from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Well, this idea about a monotheistic God and some, I mean, people of the book in some ways does extend to some extent into also Islam, which builds upon the historical foundations of Judaism and Christianity. But there's a reason then, the question then becomes, well, why does it stop? So you can find that the Muslims, when they're talking about um, uh, science and their involvement in the science, they're almost always talking about some period between the seventh and 12th century. And then they having this huge impact, which they did. There's no way to deny that. So the question is, why does it stop? And I think it's because probably that at some point, a set of religious leaders, now this has been a lot of work done on this. I don't think anyone can say with, you know, definitively what the answer really is here, but there's a book called The Closing of the Muslim Mind, in which there's a kind of trying to explore why this happens. And, and I think a lot of it is because some of the imams who are most influential kind of said, look, if it's not in the Quran, anytime you encounter something that is not explicitly affirmed in the Quran, well, whatever is affirmed in the Quran is going gonna, is gonna to win the day. There's, there's the, the, the inability to reconcile natural revelation to the special revelation they would consider in the Quran is, I think the Christians have had a better, um, a better, done a better job of seeing that both, of, even Galileo says, look, the, the Bible says how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. You know, it's it's not it's it's a it's, there's natural revelation, there's special revelation. It's the book of nature, the book of scripture, and our job is to kind of see neither one's going to be lying to us. So if we if we see a difference between these two, we're either misinterpreting one or the other. So we have to kind of figure out where are we misinterpreting it. But the idea that both of these things, Romans one, Psalm nineteen, that these both both are going to tell us something about God, we still embrace as Christians. If we said, no, you know what? primacy of scripture is such that we could never even there's no point in even looking at natural revelation all we need to know about nature can be found here stop looking over there well, that would be a science killer that hasn't been the history of christianity but that may be part of the history of why islam eventually shut down the project i don't know that it's as simple as that that's been offered as one of the kinds of explanations. I always think that explanations for this historically are always more robust and built on many different legs. So I, but I think it is something to, to think about. I don't necessarily think that the fact that, they, that, that science kind of starts to, they fall off the science map means that they, that this is now a proof that Islam is true or false or Christianity is true or false. I'm just trying to argue, and it's a cumulative case, because it's not just science, it's education, it's art, it's literature, it's music, it's all the things that I thought were important as an atheist. Now, I could have easily added to that human care, you know, in hospitals. I try to cover that in the science chapter, but but I'm looking for not just places where, the, where Jesus has had a huge impact with his followers, but also where I could still find that the fingerprints of Jesus. 
And one of the things about hospitals historically is they don't last long before they get torn down for the, for the latest model, right? Some of the universities, Bologna is still there. You can go and see some of the earliest buildings on the Bologna campus. They're still there. I think campuses like to keep their old buildings because it makes them look even more prestigious. Yeah. Hospitals tear down their buildings because they have another science that, you know, a new technology that requires a new facility. So you don't, you cannot find the original because I was in the science, in the education chapter, I'm arguing you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the buildings of the top 15 universities in the world, which you can, but those still exist. That's not true for the earliest hospitals. So that's why I didn't, you know, go in those directions. But it's so cool to think like, as we were talking about, Jesus had an impact on, you know, the culture, Christianity, basically bringing forth the scientific revolution. And you even mentioned after Darwin that, yes, and, and part of the reason why maybe you don't see it as much is because of the politicization of it. And, you know, and you have neo-Darwinianism is like the, the thing that rules a day, but it's built on these philosophical assumptions. And that's the only thing that's acceptable today. And you, if you say something right. else and you're kind of shut down, booted out or canceled. And I mean, I think um, Ben Stein did a pretty good job in his um, yeah. video expelled talking about that. Um, so if you're and out think there, about you're, that for a second, Billy, that's really um, because everything is sometimes we resist something because we feel like the other side has weaponized it. Yeah. And so even though it might, some part of it might be true, we're like, I don't care. I'm not going to have them tell me mm -hmm. about it. So so we end up rejecting something that is actually true just because the other side is holding that position. And that's what I tell, you know, I tell churches all the time, you know, I'm not against science <laughs> because right. You know, and Frank Turk has a great saying about this, and you know, it's science doesn't say anything scientists, scientists do. do. Yeah. Right. I mean, we should not be against science. We should be the the leaders in it because That's we right. recognize this is God's world and it has his fingerprint on it. That's right. Um, but now kind of towards the last part of your book, you had um, another just really cool aspect. This, we go back to the pagan religions. You talked about how the pagan religions, when they came in contact with Jesus, Mm -hmm. They mention him, merge him, or modify him. And this is one of those, uh, like I said, light bulb things that I never really thought about before because people, again, they talk about, oh, Jesus was a copy of pagan myths. And it's like, you look at the pagan myths and you look at the story of Jesus and you're trying to figure out, oh, is this a copy? But one of the things I'd never thought about before, literally never thought about until I read this book is, well, here's, here's something that definitely happened is that these pagan myths started before Jesus. But Jesus comes along, they hear about Jesus, and now they begin to change their theology. Right, right. And, they begin to but, accommodate Jesus or just adopt the practices of Jesus' yes. worshipers. And that's the amazing impact. That Jesus doesn't just impact every uh, theological system that follows him. Of course, you would expect that. But he impacts the theological systems that preceded him. That's bizarre. Because, mm -hmm. you know, those systems preceded him. He could easily have mentioned them in his own teaching. Nope, 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 nope. No, as a matter of fact, he says, I'm the only way. Um, the other, all of the other systems will say, well, we can include Jesus in some way. We can modify. We can we can somehow merge Jesus into our systems. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's very exclusive, and that's why I think sometimes a suspect will stand out to you because you've got other suspects, but they don't. They don't. They're all similarly um, um, unprovocative. They're all similarly not involved. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the one thing they all have in common is they're not the suspect. And the one guy stands out because he's got unique opportunities to kill her, unique, unique anger that would cause him to kill her, unique uh, access to her. All kinds of unique features is, are involved in that one suspect. Jesus is similarly unique. He offers a worldview which is not workspace. And contrary to every other system, he stands alone. He also will not embrace the other systems or include them in any way. You know, Baha'is include everyone, 
if you're a Muslim, they've got Muhammad in their system. They've got everyone in their system because Buddha, they've got them all because Baha'u'llah Baha says they're all manifestations of God. Jesus says, no, there is no room here for anyone other than me. That's how he's unique. And that's not an arrogant claim because if there is one way to God, you'd want to hear about it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to be fooled into thinking that every way will get you there. There's only one, you know, house on this street that's my house. I don't want you to be fooled and thinking that everyone's house is my house. You'd be knocking on the wrong door. Mm -hmm. It turns out that this kind of unique and exclusive um, truth about how you get to my house is pretty common for all of us. Same is true for God's house. And so I think a lot of it is us trying to figure out which of these. And Jesus has an impact like no other person in history, even on other non-Christian religions. So how can people get um, all the rest of the material, right? ColdCaseChristianity.com. Go to the website. Yes, just go to uh, personofinterestbook.com for this book, Person of Interest Book. But you'll also see it if you go to coldcasechristianity.com. And so our goal is trying to give it as much free content as we possibly can. Right now, we have an you know, if we buy the book, I'm going to send you all the PowerPoint. I'm going to send you all the illustrations in the book. I'm going to send you all the Bible inserts in the book. I just want people to be able to teach this content to others. Yep, it's fantastic stuff. Definitely go check it out and get the book. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me, brother. I appreciate it. We're going to get together soon, I'm sure. I mean, at the conference, at the uh, national conference. I, I will hope. be there. Okay, excellent. I'll see you there. <laughs>